2: Joe, Yo, where you going with that mic in your
1: hand? It's time for school, rock school, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. I listened to her in high school, and I caught so much heck from my rock friends. You know, oh, you like that music, and I'm, I just feel vindicated that John Lennon <laughs> liked her as well. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and Tammy is not in the studio with us today. Why? Because I have another great book for you by another great author, and we're going to talk to that person for an hour. On December eighth, 1980, John Lennon dies at the hand of Mark David Chapman. His last album, Double Fantasy, had come out less than a month before. As a matter of fact, he signs a copy of it for Mark David Chapman. Previous to Double Fantasy, John Lennon had become a recluse. According to an interview with Playboy, he was watching the kid and baking bread. But he was listening to music. And that's the point of the book today. Tim English is the author the name of the book is John Lennon 1980 playlist it is a deep deep dive into what John Lennon was listening to what John Lennon was watching the places John Lennon went and although the author Tim English never really wraps it up in a pretty pink bow to say this is how what Lennon listened to became this he lays it out for us and allows us to sort of figure out what was taken what was melded together to become double fantasy and he'll explain it in a lot more detail for an hour today Tim English and the book John Lennon 1980 playlist on the phone with me Tim English author of a new book John Lennon 1980 playlist Tim, how are things up in New Jersey not too bad.
0: How's everything down in New Orleans?
1: Well, we're dry, and apparently you're cold. One of the two. Yeah,
0: well, it is uh, November, so uh, it gets that way every year up here.
1: Now, look, this book, i, I-, I got to tell the audience right up front, is—it is, it is an interesting way of putting it together. You simply break the chapters or small sections into what John Lennon was listening to previous to creating... The last album, the Double Fantasy album. That, how do you even pitch that to a book company?
0: Well, uh, at the stage of the game, I've, I, this is the third book I've published, and the first first one I did pitch to the various publishers, uh, you know, and they all said, "Yeah, we like it, but not sure it's for everybody else." Uh, that book was called Sounds Like Tina Spirit, a book about rock songs that appear to have ripped off their melodies from earlier songs. So since that in consultation with an agent that I had in New York at that time, he said, just go the independent route. He said, these publishers don't do that much for you anyway, in all honesty.
2: Yeah. And
0: uh, it's financially uh, more uh, viable to just publish it yourself. So that's what I've done the last few times. Um, so I didn't really, honestly, I didn't really pitch it. I just had to think about... Uh, really, with all the books I do, is a book that I'd like to read myself, and uh, trying to see if we come up with a new way of framing a particular topic. And, um, you know, in in the case of John Lennon, I mean, he, he must have more books written about him, more pages written about him, than almost everybody You could possibly think of. So it's a real, you're right, it's a real challenge to try to bring something new to the table. But that's what I tried to do in the book, is to, I just was fascinated with the music that was going on at that time, 1980. It was a year of a lot of changes in the world. Uh, New Wave was in the ascendancy, disco was sort of on the way out. Um, And really, it was the beginning of the 80s where video was just coming in. So, uh, and of course, it was the year John ended his. self-imposed retirement after five years so um, you know I try to look at not only what was going on uh, musically at that time but also give the backdrop of what was going on in the world and in John's case show how some of the music he's listened to actually impacted the crucial decisions he made that year uh, including going back in the decision to go back into the studio in uh, the summer of
1: 1980. So do you believe by looking at uh, a musician's playlist because it i talked about the way the book was written because i i got about i don't know a third through it and i thought this is odd but the problem is i kept chomping at the next one and it, it sort of led us on but if if you could look and this is what the book is if you could look at an artist's playlist Do you really think you understand what they create better? Should artists release what they've been listening to previous to making their albums? Because it seems an interesting idea.
0: Well, in the case of John Lennon, I mean, I, I think one of the overall themes of the book is that, you know, being a musical genius and a great songwriter... Uh, it's, it's interesting to know that he listened to everything. He had a very wide palette of what he listened to. He listened to everything from jazz to gospel uh, to new wave to reggae to uh, punk to even uh, a little bit of rap. Um, you know, I think that's uh, in these days where we're also I'll, I'll look at an artist sometime and they'll ask him, They'll say choose what albums you you know you are your favorites, and it's almost predictable sometimes. If someone's involved in this genre, all the stuff they not always, but often they'll you, you can almost predict what they're gonna be listening to. I don't think John Lennon was that way. Sure, he was keeping tabs on his contemporaries like Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney mm-hmm. and David Bowie, but you know there was a lot of other music, uh, sometimes surprising things that he was also listening to. I mean, he liked just regular pop music like Christopher Cross's Sailing and Olivia Newton-John's Magic, both of which were uh, number one hits in the summer of 1980. He was on the record of of liking those. So um, just the fact that he uh, had such a a broad palette, he didn't uh, turn his nose up at anything, he had a jukebox filled with uh, Bing Crosby records. I saw that. You know, he didn't didn't frown on that as granny music or anything like that. And I think that's a a clue to his musical genius of just listening to everything and then incorporating it uh, somehow into his own creativity. Our
2: life together is so precious, together. Time. No, no one's one wants to play a minor time fly.
1: Really good about the idea that he liked Olivia Newton John or as we called her in my high school Olivia Neutron bomb uh, <laughs> because I listened to her in high school and I caught so much heck from my rock friends you know oh, you like that music and I'm I just feel vindicated that John Lennon <laughs> liked her as well in some way yeah. look I'll give yeah. you one more overriding question and then I want to get a little bit specific What did you take away? There was a time before you wrote this or researched this book and you thought John Lennon was this. Now the book's over. What did you learn? What did you take away? Well, that was one
0: of the things. I also learned, you know, in the book, uh, as you've seen, I mean, I kind of use the songs as a jumping-off point to try to shed light on some of the aspects of John's life at that time. And, you know, I have to say things that stand out are um, are, um, how the music really affected what he was doing. I mean, it was by listening to Queen's Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Paul McCartney's coming up that he said, hey, you know, this is a good time for music. This is my era kind of coming back again. He said the music of today, meaning 1980, is the best time for music since the 1960s. so, you know, just that the, 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 his listening actually affected decisions that he made. Another thing was, why was he back in the studio uh, in uh, even the week that he was killed, the night he was killed? Uh, Double Fantasy was released on November 17th, 1980, and by first week of
2: December, John is back in the studio working on the Yoko song, Walking on Thin Ice, mm-hmm.
0: which had originally been tracked back in the summer. And I kind of reveal, I don't think most people know what caused him to do that. It was actually an article in the New York uh, paper called the Soho News, which was kind of a uh, competitor to the village voice at the time, they put Yoko on the cover, a special feature of, of her, purely titled Yoko only that came out about a week before uh, John was murdered. And in that story, they mentioned the writer who had interviewed Yoko extensively and later spent time with John in the studio. And I actually interviewed the writer. Uh, he, um, said that uh the, the story he had reported that the peppermint lounge dj peppermint lounge was the hot club in new york at the time was playing yoko's uh, double fantasy track kiss 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 mm-hmm. john heard that and he was just thrilled he said finally yoko's getting the recognition she deserves uh, all the hipster the dance people in new york are getting into it we need to give these djs a record by yoko especially for them and so that's why he was walking working on uh, Yoko's Walking on Thin Ice. So those are two things. One other thing, you talk about surprising things. I mean, I knew that John had recorded the song Living on Borrowed Time during Double Fantasy Sessions, but he had, which later came out on Milk and Honey. But he, he recorded three other songs that year, one of which was Walking on Thin Ice. But he had another one called uh, Gone From This Place, and he had another one that he wrote in the fall called um, uh, Help Me to Help Myself that has a line in it that says I tried so hard to stay alive but the angel of destruction was by my side and you know to hear these songs I mean the guys singing and writing a song called living on borrowed time when he's got about four months to live and these other songs are just kind of eerie and even Yoko when they released uh, help me to help myself in 2000 she said you know maybe he did have some sort of premonition because they all
1: deal with uh, sort of impending doom you know So that was kind of uh, eerie, I guess I would say. Well, there's also that belief, and I don't know how much stock you want to put in this, um, the song Come Together, when he goes, shoot. A lot of people say it sounds a lot like shoot me, meaning he figured he would die. He had a lot
0: of references. I mean, uh, your blues says Lonely Wanna Die and uh, uh, Cold Turkey uh, also, Wish I Was Dead. I mean, so it was no stranger to that, but, you know, really, right there months before he's, uh, he's killed, uh, he's writing these songs just kind of, uh, I don't know, promoting eerie, I guess. People
2: say I'm crazy, doing what I'm doing, well they give me all kinds of warnings, to save me from ruin. I
1: There's there's three people that came up and it they came up a good bit. One of them being Blondie, the other being Donna Summer and then you spent a good bit of time on Christopher Cross probably because of the trip to Bermuda as well, which I want to talk about later. Do do you know did Blondie, did Donna Summer, did Chris Cross did, did they know that he enjoyed them so much or was was they were they told later? I mean, did he have contact with these people?
0: Um in the case of Christopher Cross, as far as I know, no. Uh, Christopher Cross is a big Beatle fan because he was part of the uh, 50th anniversary tour uh, that Todd, he did with Todd Rundgren and a couple other musicians. I think Joey Mullen from Badfinger a couple years ago. But uh, Donna Summer was actually, John was a huge Donna Summer fan. He liked all her records. And you uh, he, he would ask him what music today you like. He often several times brought up Donna Summer's name. They were also label mates in the fall of 1980 because uh, she was the first signing to David Geffen's uh, record company. And, um, and um, uh, of course, John signed very quickly thereafter uh, her, uh, her album, uh, The Wanderer. Uh, was the first release on Geffen, and John was very fond of that song, The Wanderer. In fact, he heard it. He said, listen at this. Do- she's doing Elvis. She's doing Elvis, you know. <laughs> he was the world's biggest Elvis fan, I think, but he heard uh, her doing some Elvis things in her song, just as John had done on uh, on Starting Over, his own song. So, uh, And David Geffen said that on the last night in the studio, they were actually discussing Donna Summer's new single from that album, which was called uh, Cold Love. That he was uh, discussing that with John so I would guess that she word of some of that probably got back uh, to her um, as far as um, uh, who was the third one Blondie yeah well Blondie Debbie Harry wrote in their book that just came out about a year ago that she was supposed to meet with John and Yoko uh, around the time John was killed they had been dropped off their new album at the time Auto American yeah and word came back that John really liked it that of course included uh, Rapture, which went on to be the first uh, number one hit to feature rap music in 1981. And also the song, The Tide Is High, uh, which was a cover of uh, a reggae hit from the late 60s by mm-hmm. the Paragons. Uh, now, uh, Sean Lennon recently said that he has a fond memory of, of his, his dad holding him and kind of dancing around to Blondie's The Tide Is High uh, shortly before John was killed. So, uh, yeah, so Debbie Harry and Donna Summer, I would say, were probably Debbie Harry certainly was,
1: but uh Donna summer uh, uh, was probably also. I have to ask, because you you only devoted now, it was a larger chapter, but you only devoted one to Paul McCartney. He was he, I mean, coming up and all of the hits, and do you think there was any, and I've also heard that the two of them were in contact. During his time away. I mean was there any push to that? Look McCartney's doing this and I'm sitting at home Baking bread. Do you have any uh, any idea of how that put into it?
0: Yeah, John supposedly according to uh, his aide Fred Seaman who wrote a book uh, that the he wasn't fond of the last Wings album back to the egg in 1979 can't remember the term I think he said it thought it was junk or something like that <laughs> but by two accounts the so people heard coming up uh, wouldn't happen to be in a car with them when coming up came on in the spring of 1980 he was very much taken with it uh, John said that he liked uh, the uh, he called it the freaky deaky studio version <laughs> that was the number one hit in the UK whereas in the US it was the live version that uh, much more rocked-up version was fond of both of those and I if you listen I I really think that had YouTube it's one of the only I think it is the only filmed interview of John from 1980 which is hard to believe when you think about all the publicity he was doing and you think of how much everything being filmed now is part of our world in 2020 right uh, it's a bad bad video but John in the interview says uh, they ask him Hilburn ask "Are you surprised that coming up was so good and he says uh, no how can you be surprised by your brother?" which was really touching uh, comment I thought they were sort of uh, still a little bit testy toward each other in public you know in their interviews I mean there's a Paul and Linda were on with uh, David Hartman on Good Morning America we was on Thanksgiving morning of 1980 and uh, so you can tell there's attention Paul says well you know John says some bad things about me now I don't say anything I just keep my mouth shut because I don't want him to twist what I say you know, it, you know, you know, you saw some tension there, but I think underneath it all, uh, calling each other brothers was what, what it was like. Um, according, John was interviewed, uh, you might recall, by RKO Radio on the afternoon of December eighth, and one of those, and one of the interviewers, they gave him a lift to the studio uh, after it was over, and uh, they asked him about his relationship with Paul, and he said, "Well." You know it's like brothers He said you know families fight a lot and uh they have their ups and downs but in the end uh i love him and uh i would do anything for him and i think he'd do the same for me so that was really touching and i i think that's the truth of it Uh, despite all the sort of sniping that they would sometimes do in their interviews.
1: We need to take our first break here on The Rock School Show. We'll be back in just one minute to continue our discussion with Tim English and talk about his book, John Lennon, 1980 Playlist, here on Rock School. (laughs) I gotta ask you about Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. That's one video you specifically denoted, and I didn't remember it. So I put the book down and brought up YouTube, and I watched it, and that's the one that's shot in this weird orange-pink all the way through it, and Bowie is an opera clown, and these weird Greek, uh, Greek chorus people lean into that. That was... It's Bowie at his oddest... Uh, what did john lennon see in that
0: well i mean that was really a, a groundbreaking video at the time i mean mm. that was a much copied video it used a technique called paint box that was really new at the time so you get these rather startling image of, of yeah bowie's uh, dressed i guess like payati the clown and he's uh holding a tv and behind him there's a bulldozer all these sort of uh strange images and john uh, seeing that video said this is what I should be doing he, uh, One of the things you talked about things that were surprising I mean I knew he uh, was an admirer of Bowie But Bowie keeps turning up again and again uh, Throughout these years uh, up to the very end Where John was, uh, had plans to see Bowie Who was appearing in the uh, play um, The Elephant Man on Broadway mm-hmm. uh, The fall of 1980 And John had plans to go and see him Right around the week he was killed uh, but um, he, so we really I, I think he considered Bowie to be in the same league as he was and you know when Bowie passed away a few years ago I was a Bowie fan but I I, I don't know I guess growing up I wasn't the biggest Bowie fan but when you look at his output starting maybe with the uh, man who sold the world album his space oddity album he had a 10 year run of just extraordinary work which kind of culminated, I guess, with uh, with uh, the Ashes to Ashes and the Scary Monsters album in 1980. Uh, but he had a very successful album in 83, too, uh, uh, with Let's Dance. But if you look at that run of albums, I mean, Bowie, I think everybody, when you think of him, you think of him as like a fashionable guy and his makeup and his outfits and changing, but listen to the songs. I mean, the musical output and the songwriting okay. is just, outstanding coming yeah. from anybody but coming from all from one guy is really something and john really admired bowie He actually hung out with bowie which i th- don't think a lot of people know i mean they people know that they worked on the song fame bowie's first number one hit in the u.s uh, which, which john helped him to write in 1975 but uh john and bowie were hanging out together in uh, hong kong in 1977 and uh Again, you know, John had supposedly given all this uh, rock star stuff up for baking bread, but according to Bowie, they were indulging in some rock star-like activities like getting drunk and going to strip clubs in 1977 in uh, Hong Kong. So, um, and then uh, uh, John had uh, Bowie's album, uh, Lodger, from 1979, which is now, they call it the Berlin Trilogy, along with uh, Heroes and Low. Uh, even though this one wasn't recorded in Berlin, but very groundbreaking music that kind of set the template for a lot of what happened in the music of the 1980s. So um, John was keeping up with uh, Bowie at all times and uh, really a great admirer of his.
1: And and speaking of looking death in the face and being creative in the wake of it, I mean, Bowie's Black Star album was released and he passed away, what, a day or a week later? Something like yeah. that. So he followed the same format. And the funny thing is, you, you make the statement that it's hard to believe, you know, he was doing the, the rock star lifestyle. And I've lectured multiple times on his lost, what was supposed to be his lost weekend, which became months and months with Nilsson and what was her name? Mei Ling? Yeah, I... Uh, May Pang. May Pang, that's right. Yeah. You, you, you can understand...
0: By the way, by the way... What's that? oddball stuff, Mei Pang turns up in Bowie's video... For the song Fashion, which he recorded in the fall of 1980. So, uh, she, and she later, uh, I believe she married uh, Bowie's uh, producer. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of uh, just uh, connections between Lennon and Bowie,
1: but go ahead. No, I, I was just simply uh, making the point. It's easy to believe that he went out on some benders with, uh, with David Bowie. <laughs> that Talk to me about Lennon. Since we're staying on this, you know, he was a fan of, you know, whatever gets you through the night came from Elton John. And you allude that there was some Elton John connection as well. What did you find?
0: I want to say on uh, whatever gets you through the night, which I found this uh, not too many years ago, is actually based on the George McCray hit, Rock Your Baby from 1974 which was a disco hit out of uh, Miami and John loved that song. He loved disco all, all through his life well, as long as disco was around and if you listen to the guitar especially the demos for whatever gets you through the night you'll hear Rock Your Baby in there. Hmm. But uh, of course John was very tight with Elton. Uh, he was not actually his last uh, public appearance at at, uh, at the Garden on Thanksgiving 1974. He actually made another Three-song appearance uh, at a British uh, tribute show uh, at uh, I believe it was at the Waldorf in uh, the spring of 1975. That was his last real live appearance. But no, yeah, before paying crowd, it was with Elton John uh, and his band in uh, Thanksgiving Night 1974. And of course, John sang on "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," which was a number one hit. John told Elton, "Why don't you do that middle section in kind of a reggae type of way?" which they did and had a number one hit with it. And, you know, John commercially was not in the best of shape in 1974, so that came at a very convenient time for him. Whatever gets you through the night was the first and only number one hit John had in the U.S. while he was alive, which is hard, as a solo artist, uh, uh, while he was still alive. So I'm sure he was very grateful to Elton John's uh, help with that. Just about a uh, a year ago, Elton... uh, released his autobiography, which was called Me. And Elton had played uh, a concert in Central Park in September of 1980, obviously not far from where John lived. And at one point, while introducing his version of Imagine, he, said, he mentioned John and said, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he lives just up the road and he's working on a new album now. And in his book though, um, Elton said they had an after party. We was on a, a boat somewhere, in New York, uh, and John and Yoko came by uh, after the show in Central Park and they had a chance to chat with them for just a few minutes, not long because Elton was exhausted from the show and I think he left early, but that was the last time he saw John, and I don't think anybody knew about that meeting prior to that, uh, Elton revealing it in his book. Um, But of course, Elton's the the, uh, godfather to Sean, Mm -hmm. and I'd recommend everybody take a listen. Uh, Sean recorded Interviews with uh, his half-brother Julian Lennon and Paul McCartney for the BBC around John's birthday in October And they're all really touching interviews, but uh, the one with Elton is certainly worth listening to But the one with Sean and Paul where Sean is asking about what his grandmother was like, you know, his grandmother Julia And Paul is telling her it's just really touching stuff, which I think everybody should take a listen to (laughs)
2: you
1: real quick and i don't know that you know this answer but you mentioned him multiple times every time john wanted something he dispatched this guy fred seaman and you even wrote it that way he dispatched him as if you know he was coming in as some squire you know and go get me this record did john really as as he wrote in the playboy interview he just stayed home and looked after the kid and baked bread he didn't go out he needed a guy to run and get his music
0: well, I'd say both are true. He, he went out. No, he wasn't, uh, he, he as I document, I mean, he did go to see some shows during those years. Um, he definitely uh, went to see Rod Stewart one time at the Madison Square Garden. He actually, which I don't think most people do know, he went to see Devo even before they had a album out at Max's Kansas City in New York, at least according to Devo's uh, Mark Mothersbaugh. He, this is probably, this is in 1977, almost definitely. he He's outside the, uh, the club after the show, he says a uh, visibly drunk John Lennon stuck his head in the window and starts singing their song "Uncontrollable Urge" hmm. back to him. <laughs> so, and he was accompanied by Ian Hunter of Hoople according to the story too. So, you know, he was uh, yes, he was out there doing things and going to movies and stuff like that, uh, but doing it in a very quiet way and it's just saying out of the papers. Um, but, yeah, and he did have an aide that he needed this or that just to do his shopping for him. Uh, many of those lists, not all of them, but many of them were published in the John Lennon Letters book that came out a few years ago. And among those are some good sources for my book of, you know, particular albums that he had asked uh, the guy to to get for him.
1: It's time for our second break. Allow our affiliates to play their commercials. We'll be back in just one minute to talk with Tim English and wrap it up. John Lennon, 1980 Playlist. Back in a minute here on Rock School. (laughs) It probably isn't lost on the audience and it probably isn't lost on you that the reason I wanted to speak to you about this book now, and I've had it since summer, uh, is because, and I don't know when the affiliates will run this, but we are within days of the anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon, uh, early December. Do you remember, because I do, do you remember where you were when you heard about it?
0: I remember exactly where I was. And, you know, I have to say, when some of these major celebrities have died in the ensuing years, and like uh, Diana, where everybody, people who didn't know her were so touched by it, and they're, you know, I, I sometimes they will, will, I would snicker a little bit at that, but that's the way I was when this happened. I really, uh, you know, it's almost embarrassing to say, it. I felt like I'd lost someone close to me. It was just a devastating, unbelievable night and you know the only thing I could and and this is not a people are going to say it's not a correct comparison but 9-11 obviously was a tragedy on a much more Mm -hmm. greater scale because the loss of thousands of lives instead of just one but just the thought that something like this could happen and then that it did happen you know it was just uh, unbelievable to think about and uh, uh, you know just such a loss for Uh, the world and uh, the fact, very strange though the timing of it too that um, you know, he had just come back, we hadn't heard anything from him for years, hadn't seen pictures of him really in years and then he comes back and he's got music on the radio, the single had come out about a month before, the album had just come out a couple weeks before and then he's dead, he's murdered, he's assassinated, I mean just the whole thing was just had a surreal quality to it and I I remember the next night, of course, it was the number one story on the news, and I think it was Frank Reynolds on ABC, and he talked about John for maybe five minutes, and then it was on to, well, you know, in the Middle East today, and, you know, wait a minute, the world is just going to go on without this guy?
2: Yeah. You know, like, just, uh, just horrible. Just horrible. <laughs>
1: name of the book is John Lennon, 1980 Playlist. The author is the gentleman we've been speaking to for an hour, Tim English. He has a couple of other books, Popology, and the one that I can't believe got past me. Sounds like Teen Spirit. I'm probably going to buy it before the day is out because I got work to do and I need some I need some music and some, some good stuff in the background. So, I Toll
0: and Melodies, Ripped Off Riffs, and the Secret History yeah. of Rock and Roll, the and beautiful I, title You Teen Spirit.
1: You even came up with two or three during this thing, so obviously you are keyed, having m- written that other book, to look for these things. So, Well, we tried
0: to give uh, readers of that book a lot of aha moments where maybe you've heard two songs a million times, like uh, The King's All Day and All the Night and The Doors' Hello, I Love You, and never realized that one was based on the other or copied from the other, yeah. either subconsciously or, or consciously
1: just just played in a different key man and we got a shot at it
0: Tim <laughs> well Led Zeppelin uh, they said change uh, they got Jimmy Page on one uh, I guess it was a whole lot of love which they ripped off of Willie Dixon right and uh, he said well Robert was supposed to change the words but he
1: didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I got into an argument with somebody that uh, they, they said to me Led Zeppelin is the greatest rock band that ever lived and I said well the greatest rock band that ever lived that ripped off music and it oh you would think I called his mother ugly it, it went on and on Tim thank yeah. you so much for talking with us for an hour here on the Rock School Show uh, your book available at fine booksellers everywhere yep Okay. wherever you usually get books you'll find it and it's just in time for Christmas once again John Lennon 1980 playlist I loved it I think you will too thank you for speaking Thanks. with us Tim thank you it's been my pleasure